It's Friday, and you've got Oz in your ears. This is Yeri Jero, and welcome to Empire Jeopardy, the web's most popular game show. I'm your host and witness as the Empire winds itself up and just keeps unwinding. All three contestants are back from last week. He's an urban vertical farmer from battered Washington and winner of this year's Golden Trellis Award. Meet Jack Browndart. What's the Golden Trellis, Jack? Uh, it's the Oscar of vertical permaculture, Yeri. I won it for growing 380 pounds of Brussels sprouts up the elevator shaft of an abandoned factory. I brought some for you. Thanks a bushel, Jack. He was the commander of former intelligence at CINCOM Dreadsent AFPAC in Hintzville, Arkansas. But he's been picked to head the unmanned manpower center at the Drone Alone Air Force Base on Grower Island, Washington. Meet Colonel Butter Braunschweig. Uh, that's quite a promotion they gave you, Colonel. You know, once I heard about my 3D PowerPoint... And <laughs> She was a loan denier for Windjammer Gorgle in Jockey Shorts, Illinois, until they kicked her upstairs to run the whole loan denial division in their Tipping Point Washington headquarters. Meet Swindaloo Zimmer. Happy about the transfer, Swindaloo? Working for Windjammer Gorgle is the best life sentence in the business, Mr. Yarrow. Well, the rules are as simple as our returning contestants. Win two and we talk, lose two and you walk. Tie it up and we come back for more. Okay, here we go. Four out of every five... What is the percentage of packaged foods that contain empty calories? What is the percentage of civilians collateralized by a predator-launched Hellfire missile? What is the percentage of the unemployed turned away from every job opening? Right you are, Swindaloo. A lot of them sleep outside my office. Well, let's go again. They're invisible, hard to catch, and worth $100 billion. What's left of the salmon in Alaska? Who are all the wealthy deadbeats who walked on their mortgages? Who are the hundred Al-Qaeda bums still operating in Afghanistan? Bingo, Butta! <laughs> you can't fight them, you can't drone them. So here we are, Swindaloo and Butta, we could talk. Okay. Jack, you're one wrong answer away from walking. Hey, don't sell my Birkenstock short, Gary. Here it is, last one. A clueless barfly with delusions of grandeur. Who is John Bomer? Right on, Swindaloo. It's John Bomer, the Sultan of Suntan. I speed dated him once. Five minutes was enough. And here's what you've won, Swindy. A million dollars worth of golden sacks of crap toxic derivatives. They're perfect for wallpapering your nest egg. A complete set of the President's Heads in Chocolate from the Franklin After Dinner Mint. Mm, just in time for my book group. And... An all-expenses-paid weekend on Louisiana's Gas War Island Resort. Slip into your Hawaiian hazmat halter top, order up a couple of 30-weight mojitos on us, and chill out. Talk about a private beach, Swindy. You're the only living thing within 10 miles. I guess I could take off my top. Uh, not yet. This is Yeri Jero, host of Empire Jeopardy, reminding you that everybody else is just a failed attempt at being us. You've got Oz, the best of the best. Let's get going. Like Dave Maloney said to me just recently, hey, there's no registered Tea Party. I mean, there's no real Tea Party as a political entity. There's nobody in Congress with TP after their names. So how, co how come Michelle Bachman has a Tea Party caucus in the House? Well, not only does she have a Tea Party caucus, and I can't answer, Dave, because I really don't get it, but the first member of the GOP leadership has joined it, Republican Conference Chairman Mike Unlucky Penny Pence. 
At a press uh, availability recently, Pence was enthusiastic. You betcha, Pence said when asked if he'd join. Ah, one of the Mama Mussolini, you betcha boys. No surprise. I come out of a background. Yeah, I think he probably does come out of a background, certainly in the wrong direction. I was chairman of the Republican Study Committee. <laughs> Studying what? Studying how to say no? I was chairman of the House Conservative Caucus, he added. My hope is that this Tea Party Caucus will be an avenue for bringing some of the energy and the enthusiasm and the focus and the racism, no, that's mine, that I've seen from the National March on Washington where I spoke on 9-12 to traveling around Indiana and all around the country deeper into the well of Congress. Uh, His syntax. He hasn't paid a syntax recently, but what he's basically saying is, look, I've been around. I've even been to Indiana where it's happening, and I know there's a need for this thing for which there is, of course, no need. Pence has been solicitous of the Tea Party movement in the past. He's had his lips surgically attached to their butt. You know, the 912 Tea Party in D.C. was promoted heavily by conservative groups like Freedom Works and right-wing radio and TV host Glenn I'm Going Blind Beck. But his enthusiasm for joining the new caucus is a reminder that GOP leaders continue to flirt with the far-right flank of their base. How in the world he wants to spend time in a room with Michelle Bachman is beyond me. I mean, it is the true Bachman overdrive. It would drive me over the edge, okay? So, <laughs> flirting? They are flirting with the Tea Party? They're going all the way in the backseat of the welcome wagon. Boy, I mean, you know, I just, I just hate to be betting my future on the know-nothings in the Tea Party. I mean, Michelle Bachman, my hero, Michelle Bachman, who is responsible for 15% of Maybelline's eyeshadow sales. Hi, this is Sharzad Hackerthumb, and I play the teenage barista at the Useless Boy Cafe on Tipping Point, Radio Free Oz's new seaside soap opera. I listen to Radio Free Oz because I pick up the occasional useful Yiddish term. I know that the executives at Goldman Sachs of Kraft are not simply thieves and criminals, they're mumsers and tumblers. John Bomer isn't just a witless hand puppet, he's a schmendrick. And the vice principal at my middle school is a schmohawk. When one of the stuck-up girls in my class gave me grief, I told her to stop being such a schmageggy. She said I was putting a curse on her. Maybe I was. This is Sharzad Hackerthumb, and you've got Oz in your ears. This is uh, the first part of my interview with Daniel Ellsberg about the Eikenberry Cables as the Pentagon Papers of the Afghan War. I have the honor of having Daniel Ellsberg on the phone with me. Uh, Dan is featured in um, the Academy Award-nominated Best Documentary, The Most Dangerous Man in America, Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers. And that's out today on DVD, so you can get to Netflix or to your local store or whatever and take a look. Dan, thanks so much for joining us on Radio Free Oz. Thank um, you. Glad to be here. Well, the, one of the things that, that really energized me to, to try and reach you was that um, you had referred to the Eikenberry Cables as the Pentagon Papers of the Afghan War. And uh, I join you in that sentiment, and I'd like to, to get some of, your, some of your background on this and, you know, how you feel and, and what you think these, these, these cables mean and how you think we may be able to respond to them. So you just, you just go, Okay. Glad to be that you're asking about at this point. It's uh, months after they actually appeared on the website of the New York Times. Yeah. 
In fact, you have the exact date there. I think if you look it up in the Times, it's January or so, quite a while ago. So, uh, however, I found when I <laughs> lecture about them or speak about them in connection with the film or whatever, uh, I find that most people, even in New York with the Times, had not heard of them. Really? And uh, partly that's because of little characteristics of our mainstream media. The Times ran one story, one day story. Mm-hmm. And it turns out, as people told me years ago, uh, if a story appears one day in either TV or the press, it didn't happen. <laughs> that the only thing that really impresses itself on people's consciousness is uh, is a running story oh. that has legs, as they say, and it, it goes day after day. Like the Pentagon Papers themselves, when Nixon uh, made the very bad mistake on the advice of John Mitchell, his bond lawyer, attorney general, that uh, he should enjoin the papers, uh, which had, in fact, never happened in American history. Right. The First Amendment was uh, really created in large part to avoid prior restraint like that. So there had never been an injunction against the newspapers. And when Nixon asked uh, John Mitchell, well, have we done this before? John, John said, uh, yes, yeah, sure, lots of times. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Not, that's what you get, as I say, with the bond salesman for Attorney General. Well, the effect was that uh, with the whole American press, one by one, printing these papers in the face of what turned out to be four injunctions uh, before they gave up, and before the Supreme Court finally ruled against the injunctions, you had day after day after day, really several weeks of uh, front-page stories about this, and it, it really hit. Uh, the Eikenberry Cables, which also, like the Pentagon Papers, were the revelation of insiders' views to the president of what was really likely to happen and what he ought to do, views that the president proceeded to ignore and bet against, in effect. Yeah. Uh, they uh, they were very similar then to the Pentagon Papers, but when they were leaked, they say it was a one-day story and uh, in the Times. And another little characteristic of our mainstream press was that the Washington Post didn't run a single story on it. No. Amazing revelations. No. Now, to be specific, by our ambassador in Kabul, in Afghanistan, Lieutenant General, a retired Lieutenant General, Eikenberry, Carl Eikenberry, who had was not only the man in daily touch with Hamid Karzai, the uh, president of uh, Afghanistan, but had earlier been in charge of our military operations in Afghanistan, a job that McChrystal took later. So there was no person more qualified to say what Eikenberry was saying to the president through the Secretary of State, and that was that uh, Karzai was a totally inappropriate person, being very euphemistic in his language here. Yes. Uh, you, inappropriate person as a, as a partner, not an appropriate partner for a pacification program, a counterinsurgency program, which depends upon the public, the citizens regarding that government <clears throat> as a legitimate government that deserves to be sustained and that uh, deserves even risky help in terms of giving them information about the whereabouts and the activities of insurgents against that government. 
And of course, to give them such information does take a risk because the insurgents may kill you for it, for doing that. You have to really feel some degree of loyalty and uh, concern about that government to help it out in that way. Well, as uh, what the reason that Karzai wasn't entirely appropriate, uh, as Eckenberry put it for it, uh, for this role, was that he was a, uh, a drug dealing crook. Totally incompetent. Uh, people didn't accuse him of being either a crook or a drug dealer personally. It was his brother who was those things and who he put in office. And uh, if, so long as we were prepared to assume that uh, money flowing into his brother's pockets from opium uh, transactions and from various other crooked deals had nothing to do with Hamid Karzai's uh, interest or bank account. Uh, you could regard Hamid Karzai as a kind of uh, trustworthy, honest, competent person that Reagan, uh, not rather, uh, he was presented as being earlier when George uh, W. Bush put him in front of the State of the Union uh, audience, as I remember, pointed out to him. Uh, he was sitting there next to his wife, as I recall. Yeah. So, uh, and when Karzai presented himself just recently after the Eikenberry cables, he was given a tour in Washington. He was given a tour of Georgetown Gardens by our Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, a new perquisite for a visiting head of state that they invented <laughs> for Hamid Karzai. And in addition to the uh, uh, private meetings with the president and uh, talks with Congress and everything else, having been exposed. Uh, sometime earlier by our ambassador, who was present at the time uh, for this visit, as, as I say, uh, a, a, a drug-dealing crook. So uh, that's, uh, that's our ally, and we had to make up for it. Hello, dear friends. This is Reverend Bill Barnstormer of the First Blameless Church of Science. Fiction. And let's say thank you for that. Today, dear friends, let us also say thank you to the naysayers among us. To those who put a stop to progress and change. You know, change is a dangerous slogan. In this troubled world, change means to give up your righteousness. Change threatens the family. Change isn't in the Constitution. It's in the Declaration of Independence, and we went through all of that long ago. So to say no to everything is to make no mistakes, and let's say thank you for that. No closes that open door to your inner office. Say thank you. No inspires your co-working man or woman to say no to, out of respect and risk to continued employment. Thank you. No lets you off the hook. As the good booklet says, park and lock it, not responsible. No good turn goes unpunished, so no frees you from having to learn anything you don't need or don't want to think about. So be a naysayer, if you got the strength. 
Remember, dear friends, ideas may appear useful, but they could be wrong. You don't want to go there. This is Bill Barnstormer. Please send for my new Naysayers Workout DVD. It lets you do that bike thing while you learn the story of Ulysses and St. Anthony, who said no to the voluptuous demons of temptation and new ideas. And it tells the story of our confusing America today and, and lets you exercise your no to the elite minorities who lack the righteousness to say no, and instead they cry out, good idea, let's try it. <sighs> $29.99 to naysayers, box no, that's mine, Arizona, 246810. Another answer to the question why you don't want to be born in a third world country. Approximately 400,000 infants will get HIV-AIDS from their mothers each year despite the availability of drugs that can block nearly all mother-to-child transmission, researchers have recently reported. Now, you can only guess where the mothers are that don't get the drugs. Giving mothers and newborns potent anti-HIV drugs has all but eliminated mother-to-infant HIV transmission in the USA and developed countries. The World Health Organization also says that HIV-infected women can safely breast feed without transmitting HIV to their newborns as long as they or their infants take antiviral medication, which is readily available, if you've got the bucks and the pull. Virtual elimination of mother-to-child transmission of HIV by 2015 is possible, Paul DeLay, Deputy Director of the United Nations Joint uh, AIDS Conference in Vienna, said relatively small investments can go a long way in saving mothers and babies. But where is that small investment? Uh, it's being put into yachts and bubbles and drugs somewhere somewhere else in the world. Worldwide, 355,000 children with HIV were able to obtain life-saving HIV drug treatment by the end of 2009, up from 276,000 in 2008, but many more lives could be saved if more infants started on medication earlier, the WHO says. Many children younger than a year old lack access to HIV treatment because HIV tests are unavailable in some places. Yeah, places where people have really dark skin. As a result, the WHO is calling for greater access to infant diagnosis starting at four to six weeks after birth. Without diagnosis, followed by prompt treatment, roughly a third of HIV-infected infants will die before their first birthday. The WHO says half will die before reaching two years of age. It's a death sentence we don't have to sign. It brings up a very interesting issue. It's all about the United Nations. Our empire is winding down. The war in Afghanistan, the occupation in Afghanistan, it's our last war. It's all over. There's no other place to go. Sooner or later, and this is what's driving the teabaggers mad, is we're going to have to give over some of our power to a greater group, to the United Nations, where they speak many other languages. Remember, you must remember if you're a true American that everybody else is a failed attempt at being us. It would look as if the future has an influence on what happens today or yesterday. So it would look as if some effect from the future goes back to us today. This is part two of my interview with Daniel Ellsberg. We talk about the rise of the Taliban, and is this now Obama's war? Okay, I can very reveal this also, that the request being made by his military counterpart, McChrystal, General McChrystal, for 
30,000 to or 80,000, preferably, American troops to add to the 70,000 or so that we had there already was not only counterproductive, was not only useless, it would not help our security there at all. It was counterproductive. The more troops you put in there in the countryside killing people and killing civilians, the more recruits for the Taliban. So no matter how many people you killed over there, you ended up facing more than you had to start with. Shades and of Vietnam, that's huh? what happened in Vietnam, of yeah, course. Yes, exactly. Uh, no hearts, no minds. And in fact, that's what's happening, Dan, is that there's recent reports on the fact that the Taliban is strengthening, that uh, more people are, are flocking to them because uh, because of all the drone killings and because civilian deaths are up. It, 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 it's chaos, absolute chaos. Well, the more people we put in, the more Taliban there are to fight. And that's not a coincidence, or just an, an irony, you might say, or my, how how odd. Uh, <laughs> it's a direct cause and effect. Yeah. The Taliban are being recruited by our, the activity of our soldiers, which, uh, no matter how many Taliban they kill, involve killing more civilians or bystanders. In fact, I was thinking the other day, the Taliban, you know, is quite well-funded from the opium trade, uh, they take their cut out of it, just as Hamid Karzai and his brother, Wally Karzai, uh, take uh, take their cut out of it. So the opium trade is financing both sides, you might say. Well, uh, since they're well-financed, the Taliban pays their troops more than the Karzai government pays its troops. Now, McChrystal found out this anomaly recently uh, on taking over and gee, we ought to do something about that and increase the, the pay somewhat of the Afghan army. But uh, you might well ask, well, why did it ever come about they were paying less? The answer is the, the Karzai group is less ideological than the Taliban, which is to say more corrupt. And they just can't afford to share that opium money with their troops. They send it off to Switzerland or whatever. So... Um, Given that the Taliban does pay money for its recruits, it occurred to me they have the money for that. Uh, they really, if they could do it sort of secretly, it would pay them to uh, <clears throat> pay our recruits. Uh, the more the more people, you know, give them a bonus for every civilian they kill. I know. Uh, so that's direct recruiting of that person's cousins, brothers, mothers, daughters, uh, for new Taliban, and uh, they, the Taliban couldn't do better uh, at getting itself more recruits than to pay our Afghan army or our military for the civilians they kill. Let me let, let me and, ask you something, Dan. Which is I want to get to one point, which which I think is really significant, also, which is that that they're calling what steel and people like that are calling this Obama's war now. Now you have a lot of experience in in, in this. Is that has this become Obama's war? Is this just something that he got as a you know well, as a dowry or what? He didn't start it. No, he didn't start it any more than Johnson started the Vietnam War, right. or Kennedy started the Vietnam War, and yet Kennedy, by increasing our advisors from about 1,000 to 16,000, yeah. made it Kennedy's advisory war, still on the small side. And then Johnson uh, inherited the war, as they say, but he increased the number from 16,000 to 550,000. So that's a different war. 
and it's Johnson's war. Of course, it is Obama's war now, moving up. He's more than tripled uh, the number of troops that were there. It's an entirely different size war than he took over. So I think it's perfectly fair for Steele to call it Obama's war. Now, the reason that the reason that uh, the Republicans are so mad at their their chairman for calling it Obama's war is that uh, they like it. They want it to continue. Uh, they have some unease about it. I mean, they're not totally moronic, so they can see that it isn't going too well at the moment, but it's something they want to keep going. They believe in it. They support it. They're looking for victory. And so they don't want Obama to get the credit for it. Uh, The point is that Steele, who seems to be considerably something of a jerk, uh, occasionally is able to come up with something reasonable. And when he caught, when he said this is a war that's absurd to think of uh, the worst case in the world for Americans to choose to fight a war, that's pretty close. That's that's a good approximation. It's very hard to think of a worse place to fight a war. I noticed even Hillary Clinton mentioned he was a big supporter of it, and one of the one of the people, by the way, who was overruling Eikenberry really? on the uh, need to put more troops over there. But even she said the other day, I noticed that. It's uh, unusually costly logistically to support our troops, but usually difficult terrain to fight in. And uh, when I see pictures of it, as, as I did on this movie, quite good uh, documentary the other day, Restropo, Restropo, it just makes me shudder to think as a former Marine infantry officer. Uh, I, I could feel it in my back every time somebody had to get up off the ground with that heavy pack heavy pack. They're now wearing body armor, which we didn't in the Marines when I was in. And uh, special sights on their rifles. Oh, yeah. And all that that wonderful technology, which we didn't have to carry around because it didn't exist. And when I see people lumbering up those mountaintops, desert mountaintops in there, I could just feel for them. I, I, I didn't think I could stand up under that stuff. Benson was a farmer He grew the Minnesota wheat He rode there with his daughter High up on the thresher's seat They broke down on the hillside The radiator spitting steam Went back to get the toolbox So they could fix the old machine With a turn of the wrench And a twist of the screw We can fix the tractor We can make it like new But that day they got a letter They said the power lines would come Right across their farmland Right across the setting sun So they gathered all the family And talked late into the night We cannot let them do this We've got to put up one hell of a fight With a turn of the wrench And a twist of the screw We'll apply a little pressure 
And we'll see what that will do So they phoned a hundred farmers And drove to the Twin Cities Met there with the governor And they sued the utility But after writing all the letters And paying all the legal costs To the power of the city Once again the farmers lost And in the still of the evening The wind is all you hear I watch the waves on the wheat fields alone I walk the furrows of earth I plant year after year This is our land, this is our home This is our land, this is our home So they met there at the tavern But there wasn't much to say The power lines may come But they will not stay with a turn of the wrench and a twist of the screw what was once put together we can easily undo with bandanas on their faces careful not to make a sound they loosened all the bolts that held the towers to the ground And several weeks later With nobody around The Minnesota wind Blew tower after tower after tower Down with a turn of the wrench And a twist of the screw What was once put together
it's sad. I mean, I know people who are partisan and don't like the GOP because they are such awful rascals right now would be happy to know that they are, they have decided. They've got their strategy for the midterm elections. They're mm -hmm. going to make it basically a question of, was the Bush era good for the country? That's where they're going. They're, go they're putting up the Bush flag. Mm. Um, uh, Has everybody forgotten the Reagan flag? Though for most of President Obama's tenure, Republicans were eager to run away from that question. Yep. They now act as though the answer makes them bulletproof. With the economy still in crisis and polls showing Republicans poised to pick up many seats this November, haha, GOP leaders have found the nerve to explicitly argue that what the country needs is a return to the same policies that triggered the country's woes in the first place. We need to go back to the exact same agenda, he said, that is empowering the free enterprise system rather than diminishing it, said NRCC Chairman Pete Sessions on Meet the Press. For Democrats, the comments was a gift, one they plan to use repeatedly between <laughs> now and the fall. They quote, We could have not made the case any clearer than Pete Sessions did that the Republicans only want to go back to the failed policies of President Bush. Then NRSC Chairman John Cornyn chimed in on C-SPAN. John does him one better. Look, he says. <laughs> and he's probably the wingiest, with Inhofe, the wingiest of the wingers. Yeah, Cornyn, DeMint, and, and Inhofe are like the, the three hear no, see no, smell no evil, the mindless boys. He says, look, I think President Bush's stock has gone up a lot since he left office. <laughs> People appreciate his resolve and commitment in the face of a national security threat like 9-11. He had his challenges, no doubt. We have learned a lot about things we could have done better as Republicans in terms of fiscal responsibility. I think a lot of people are looking back with a little more, with more fondness on President Bush's administration, and I think history will treat him well. Yeah, well, give me a pipe full of whatever Johnny is smoking. <laughs> if that stuff makes Bush look good... I gotta try a taste. Part three of my interview with Daniel Ellsberg. What are Obama's options? How ignorant are we of the country and the culture we're occupying? Let me ask you, what options does Obama have? If you were advising Obama today, you walked into the Oval Office and said, Mr. President, here's what I think is your, here's, here's the best alternative. What would you recommend? Karzai is right now the mayor of Kabul and not a very well-situated mayor at that. He has won the city under his control. And that's the city, by the way, where women are a big concern there about uh, women's rights. It's the one city where women are doing better than they did under the Taliban. They can go to universities. They don't have to wear the burqa, although a lot of them do. Outside Kabul, women have not benefited at all. The people who are mainly supporting the warlords uh, don't throw acid so much in women's faces, but they rape them. And uh, so we, our presence there has done nothing uh, for women out there but, but kill their husbands and themselves in various uh, military operations. You could keep, uh, Eikenberry, in effect, was advising not getting out immediately and altogether. He didn't even raise that possibility. He said, don't put more people in. And that meant essentially don't pretend that you control much more than Kabul or one or two other cities, perhaps Kandahar or Karad, <coughs> a couple of others. Uh, do not do search and destroy operations in effect in the countryside. Don't go out looking for Taliban in places where they and their cousins and families totally control. And they are the government. 
uh, you leave that to them, essentially. And uh, uh, stop combat operations in those places. Withdraw to the places where you have essentially already uh, a degree of control and negotiate with the Taliban uh, the best deal you can get about sharing uh, government responsibilities in there, in that country, which is very decentralized by nature and by history. And don't pretend you have one central government that controls the whole country. Uh, basically, stop killing Afghans. Stop creating recruits for your resistance. And uh, negotiate. Negotiate with the, in, including, by the way, all the parties there who are involved, um, including Pakistan, right? Pakistan and uh, the Taliban, in definitely including the Taliban, and uh, uh, India is involved. China is involved. Russia is uh, is in the neighborhood. Saudi Arabia, um, yeah, well, yeah. Iran, they're all involved. Yeah. The best, the best arrangement you can to stop this war. Cut your losses. Uh, do not pretend, which is a pure pretense, that your prospects five years from now and ten years from now and thirty years from now of fighting are going to be any better than they are now. Stop pretending that you're going to build a situation of strength. Uh, well, what you're doing is building a situation of strength for the other side that matches yours and ensures a bloody, endless stalemate. That's what we could have decided uh, ten years ago, could have decided years and years and years before we finally did in Vietnam and uh, get a better deal now uh, when you do have a degree of an Afghan army only mainly uh, confronting the Taliban before you have done more operations that simply strengthen the Taliban. Let me ask you one more question. Let us say they don't take your good advice and they continue on. By the way, that's what I'm saying is I'm no expert on on (laughs) Afghanistan. I'm simply saying as somebody who saw the same process, and I did see that one up close in Vietnam, and it looks very similar to me. It makes very plausible the advice given by General Eikenberry, who, by the way, and one irony here is all the rumors in the uh, papers are that uh, McChrystal having gone, some other people ought to go too, and they're talking about getting rid of Eikenberry, the one guy who told good truth to the president. He's the one they want to get rid of. And we must remember that Carl Eikenberry is one of our few soldier-scholar-diplomats. He's West Point, he's he's uh, uh, Princeton, Harvard, and, and speaks fluent Mandarin. He's, he's qualified as a Mandarin translator. This is a man of the world who can write and think and fight if necessary. And to get rid of him, I think that's the worst decision, Obama. I'm a large Obama supporter generally, but in this case, I think the man has been overwhelmed by too much fruit salad on too many generals' chests, or something's something's well, going wrong. Well, I just learned something. I, I didn't know that he spoke Mandarin. Now, I do have to say, it's not obvious to me that's the highest qualification for his being ambassador in Afghanistan. But uh, but here's an interesting thing about I learned recently about Afghanistan. I've started asking people, what do they speak in Afghanistan? What are the languages? I don't want to embarrass you, but do you happen to know what the languages are, the two main languages? Well, I think Pashtun is one of them, I believe. Good, good. That's better than nearly everybody. That's Pashtun the and the other the other language, I'm trying to remember the name of it. I, it. It doesn't come to mind. I've seen it at points. What is it? Okay. It's not Mandarin. No, of course not. No. Uh, 
and it's not Arab. No. It, uh, as, as many people guess, it's known as Dari, which is the uh, name given there to Eastern Farsi, and Farsi, of course, is Persian, Iranian, in other words. Uh, okay, these are two different languages. What struck me about it is I found nobody who can really, who generally knows even one of those, let alone two. And it struck me that whereas in Vietnam, we didn't speak the language, Vietnamese, but really everybody knew what the language was. Yes. And in Afghanistan, we're talking about remaking a country, totally revising its its uh, uh, culture, really, and its uh, governance and everything else about it. A country where we don't even know what the language we don't speak is. Yeah. We don't know what language, what, most Americans wouldn't know what dictionary to buy if they were going to Afghanistan. Correct. It seems to me symbolic of a really high degree of ignorance about a country we're, we're messing about in and killing people in. Okay, Dave, Oakland, California, number one. The Oakland City Council has adopted a plan to license four production facilities where medical marijuana would be grown, packaged, and processed. The move makes Oakland the first city in the nation to license wholesale pot cultivation. Supporters of the measure say it would generate millions of dollars for Oakland in taxes and sales, create hundreds of jobs and positions Oakland's to reap the dividends if voters pass a November initiative to legalize recreational use of marijuana. My favorite part of the story, mm-hmm. opponents say it would drive small growers out of business. <laughs> So, man, that's the new GOP. Well, we're yeah, the small yeah. business party. Yeah, we're the really, man. I got, uh, you know, I got uh, six plants. And how can I make any money on this, man? No, that's, it's, uh, they're, they're finally, this, this could have happened in 1971 when California was very close to passing. Uh, Alan Cerrotti was the guy. And right. he used to, uh, very close to passing all of this legalization, in which case we would have saved innumerable lives, billions of dollars, and people could just go on smoking the grass. You know, I mean, you remember in Los Angeles when they used to have a great big bakery down there near Culver City, and you'd drive, you'd be three or four blocks and you away could from smell it, Helm's Bakery. Mm, it oh. was so good, that Well, smell. now <laughs> they're going to be these big pot plant machines. fact, mm, I'm visiting Oakland. Oh, Mendo, Bendo, it's the kind. Every time Obama comes on the TV, which I watch Fox News all during the day, I switch a channel to the Hallmark Channel to figure he's gone, then I switch it back. Part four of my interview with Daniel Ellsberg. What is the end game? How long will we be there? Well, let me ask you this. If indeed we continue the strategy that we're, that seems to be where Obama's going, what do you see as the end game? What's going to happen to us in Afghanistan? Do you have any idea? Do you have a vision of the yeah, end? No, I have a, a fairly clear idea, I would say. As I see, uh, on the one hand, uh, uh, Obama spending months fighting against, I imagine, his, uh, but... Uh, Nevertheless, compelled to give in to the military, to McChrystal and Petraeus, on sending not all the troops they wanted at first, 80,000, but sending 30,000, 40,000 troops there now. I see them uh, moving toward getting rid of the one guy who foresaw this, clearly, Eikenberry, in favor of <coughs> Petraeus, who uh, uh, has sold the army on this counterinsurgency doctrine and really gotten it wedded to a doctrine, which was, by the way, my job in 
Vietnam to learn and to promulgate the doctrines of counterinsurgency. And I, I got to know a lot about that in Vietnam. Consider, I see it has no promise whatever in Afghanistan, but I predict it's going to be applied for a while. And so I think the likely, not certain, but the likely trajectory in <clears throat> Afghanistan is going to be more of the same. And by that, I don't just mean the continuation of what we're doing, but the escalation, genuinely more. Not only is Obama and even Biden now backing away from this supposed July 2011 date for beginning to withdraw troops in Afghanistan, which I may say I never believed in for a moment. I believe that what's going to happen is not just that we're only going to withdraw a few troops in July, as Biden just said, not, as he was earlier saying a month earlier, a lot of troops. I think that's going to be illusory altogether. Uh, as they withdraw some troops, they will shortly be putting in more troops. And I expect uh, over time the military to be requesting uh, more of that 80,000 they originally requested, uh, 40,000 is not enough, and 80,000 is not enough. And if and when, which is very problematic, they begin to withdraw troops significantly more from Iraq, which is not going to meet schedule either, but those troops are going to go to Afghanistan. And I still think that two years from now, uh, there will be more troops in Afghanistan than there are one year from now, and more than there are now. It's going to be a rising, escalating stalemate, as was the case in, Viet in Vietnam. It's going to be an increasingly bloody stalemate. Uh, they're even now talking about more U.S. troops than ever before. I think it's some 33 or something in the last month. Well, that's still a small number uh, by these standards it's going to get larger and it's going to go on. It's going to bleed like the Gulf oil spill, I think, below the surface for quite a long time. What an image. And you know, Dan, the difference is, is that in Vietnam, you had a national, you were fighting an actual army. It was an, it, there was an actual war going on. It wasn't an occupation the way this is. This really isn't a war. This is an armed occupation. And there's, there's really no real enemy. Yeah, the Taliban are the enemy, but you know, they live there. And you know, you can be a Taliban one day and an opium grower the next. You can make those kind of choices. How, you know, where does it end? There, there is no embassy to fly off of, right? There, there are no helicopters to dump in the ocean. How do we leave? No, the uh, <laughs> okay. Let me disagree with you a little on that. Please. On that person, I think the the it's really closer to Vietnam, although it hasn't yet reached the scale of Vietnam uh, <clears throat> in casualties on our side. Uh, but I think it's closer than you suggest there. Really, Vietnam was pretty much an occupation. Yes, there were regions we didn't go into very much, but that's true in Afghanistan as well. There are regions that are no-go. Uh, uh, in fact, this movie that I can recommend, Restrepo, named after uh, an outpost named after one of the first Americans to be killed uh, in that unit. Well, it's very. you look at that, you see nothing worthwhile happening, dying and killing going on, horrible physical efforts being made in this uh, unforgiving uh, environment after a year. 
after a year, they live. Tell, they leave telling themselves at the end of the movie uh, that they've accomplished something, which the viewer hasn't noticed. You know, nothing has changed. And the end of the movie is, and then the U.S. Army abandoned the Korangal Valley. You know, a little bit later, meaning they left it to the Afghans. This Afghanistan. Uh, yeah, that's the way it was eventually in Vietnam, and that's the way it's going to be in Afghanistan. We will eventually leave Afghanistan, but I'll tell you, I don't think it'll be in 10 years the way it was in Vietnam. Vietnam was not in the middle of the uh, oil region of the world, a place that we really want to have bases there for a very long time. It was nice to have Kamran Bay, but we've lived very well without it. Uh, we really want bases in Afghanistan as in Iraq, and I don't think because of the oil, not in Afghanistan, but oil is the is, is on the route, the pipeline route, and so forth for the from the uh, <clears throat> Central Asian states, the stands, and so forth, and they want those bases there. I think the bases were likely to be there for not just for ten years, but twenty, thirty years. It can go on indefinitely. There's an outside chance, and I allow for that, that an American people will do what they're not doing now and wake up from this dream of empire and this, this willingness to spend indefinite amounts of money. And we're talking now what I guess Everett Dirksen would call real money. You remember his phrase, a billion here and a billion there, and before long you're talking about real money. Well, uh, now it has to be half a trillion. Well, that's right. That's what Afghanistan is going to be, and eventually a trillion. And in, in Iraq, this at a time when we can't afford unemployment insurance for the largest amount of unemployed we've had for many years, uh, we can't afford that. We don't have the money. We have the money to spend uh, dropping white phosphorus in the Korangal Valley, which I just saw in the movie the other day. A million dollars a soldier to keep them over there because every gallon of gas has to be taken over um, little mountain roads that can be cut from any hour of the day by the Taliban to keep them from doing it. I suppose you're aware, maybe not all your listeners were. The way we get that gas in there is by contractors who bring it in on convoy. And the contractors get it over because they pay a fee to the Taliban to keep from ambushing it. Now, the fee comes from the American taxpayers uh, and goes to the Taliban. And the reason we use contractors for it instead of army is it's less embarrassing uh, to know secretly that we are paying uh, bribes to the Taliban through a contractor. It's kind of a cutout. Uh, rather than paying directly by some uniformed sergeant. So uh, we really are supporting the Taliban with those fees we're paying over there. But meanwhile, the fees make the gallon of gas extraordinarily costly. So for this, we are spending literally hundreds of millions of dollars uh, leading up to billions and trillions uh, for that useless conflict over there at a time when just about if we were making the comparison, anyone in the country could see we can't afford that. We can't afford that. Usually the U.S. doesn't have to think about wars. You know, we're so rich that uh, we can have guns and butter. Well, 
that's not the way it is now. And that war is one that we should be asking ourselves not only the question, which I, I say I focus on, why are we killing those people and why are we dying? But also, can we really afford to be doing this? These murders are costing too much. Yeah, you know, uh, Panetta said that there's only 100 al-Qaeda left in Afghanistan. We spend $100 billion a year. That's a billion in al-Qaeda. It's a lot of money. Well, remember, it's not only, it's not only Afghanistan. They're right on the borders of Pakistan. Of course. So as Panetta was asked the other day, well, how many, how many um, if there's only 100 or less than 100 in Afghanistan, how many are in Pakistan where we're sending the drones and so forth? So the answer was, uh, more, more. Well, how many more? Well, you know, not a lot. Some more. How many more? Several hundred. So there's a hundred Al Qaeda we're fighting with our 130, 130,000 troops we're going to have in uh, in Afghanistan. That's uh, that's a thousand to one, isn't it? And uh, and there's several hundred in Pakistan. And more growing well, as we speak. We don't have any troops in Pakistan yet, just drones. Yeah. But there will be troops in Pakistan. Yeah. The, the it will seep over the border. There will be raids into Pakistan. And we'll be fighting a war in Pakistan against those several hundred al-Qaeda yet. Dan, can I ask you one one other thing, which is not which is not uh, specific to this, but I and and if if you wish to talk about it, I know that you're working on a book right now, and I I wondered if you might be able to tell us a little bit about what's going on. Is that okay? Well, that's another yeah. horrible story. So, <laughs> but it's about the risks of nuclear war, which I think are very very underestimated oh. by everyone from my experience. Which before I worked in Vietnam, I was working on problems of nuclear war, command and control of nuclear weapons, nuclear war plans, possibilities of unauthorized action. And those risks, I say, have always been much greater than people outside the system were allowed to know. So I'm writing a book that's sort of in the the analogy I can draw is of someone from an insider from BP, British Petroleum, writing about the real risks of a deep water oil spill before it happened, uh-huh. or Katrina before New Orleans was drowned. And it's not a popular subject, I'm afraid, but uh, who knows, maybe it'll lower the danger. Well, we certainly hope so. You've done that before. Dan Ellsberg, it's, it's been a pleasure talking with you, and I hope we have the opportunity of, of speaking with you again on Oz. It's, it's really been quite wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks for having me. Bye. Because of us, it's morning in America. Breakfast, honey? Thanks. Hey, is this real pork? Because of us, people in the Great Plains are just plain doing things. Little things, like taking money from machines. Hey, hey, stop, kid. I'm not a machine. Because of us, they're roasting East Coast marshmallows on the West Coast. Wow, these taste like pork. We're the people of U.S. Plus. Guess what we do? Chemistry, transportation, pork. (laughs) Kind of. U.S. Plus, we own the idea of America. This is from a very interesting webzine that I go to now and then called Tom's Dispatch. One moment, 
There was the hum of a motor in the sky above, the next on a recent morning in Afghanistan's Helmand province, a missile blasted a home killing 13 people. Days later, the same increasingly familiar mechanical whine preceded a two-missile salvo that slammed into a compound in Dagon village in the tribal North Waziristan district of Pakistan, killing three. What were once unacknowledged, relatively infrequent targeted killings of suspected militants or terrorists in the Bush years have become commonplace under the Obama administration. And if you'll remember earlier on Radio Friaz, I think in what we called reaming Obama a new perspective number one or two, we said, hey, Barack, hey, Mr. P, hey, Mr. Messiah, this is state terrorism. And since a devastating December 30th suicide attack by a Jordanian double agent on a CIA forward operating base in Afghanistan, unmanned aerial drones have been hunting humans in the AFPAC war zone at a record pace. In Pakistan, an unprecedented number of strikes which have killed armed guerrillas and civilians alike, yeah, kill them all, let God sort them out, have led to more fear, anger, and outrage in the tribal areas as the CIA, with the help of the U.S. Air Force, wages the most public secret war of modern times. In neighboring Afghanistan, unmanned aircraft for years in short supply and tasked primarily with surveillance missions have increasingly been used to assassinate suspected militants as part of an aerial surge that has significantly outpaced the highly publicized surge of ground forces now underway. And yet, unprecedented as it may be in size and scope, the present ramping up of the drone war is only the opening salvo in a planned 40-year Pentagon surge to create fleets of ultra-advanced, heavily armed, increasingly autonomous, all-seeing, hypersonic, unmanned aerial systems. Drones are the hot weapons of the moment, and the upcoming Quadrennial Defense Review, a soon-to-be-released four-year outline of Department of Defense strategies, capabilities, and stupidities to fight current wars and counter future threats, is already known to reflect this focus. As the Washington Post recently reported, the pilotless drones used for surveillance and attack missions in Afghanistan and Pakistan are a priority with the goals of speeding up the purchase of new Reaper drones and expanding Predator and Reaper drone flights through 2013. It's going to become increasingly difficult to beat the Reaper. The MQ-1 Predator, first used in Bosnia and Kosovo in the 1990s, and its newer, larger, and more deadly cousin, the MQ-9 Reaper, are now firing missiles and dropping bombs at an unprecedented pace. Meanwhile, in Afghanistan, the U.S. Air Force has instituted a much-publicized decrease in piloted airstrikes to cut down on civilian casualties as part of Afghan War Commander or former Afghan War Commander General Stanley McChrystal's counterinsurgency strategy. At the same time, however, UAS attacks have increased to record level. Drones, drones, drones. I hate them. They're, they're wrong. They should be outlawed. And worst of all, as someone who was in the Army, I was no great grunt, but I was in the Army, I know cowardice when I see it. And death at a distance is nothing but state-sponsored cowardice. Well, today was a day of waking up from the dream of empire, a la Daniel Ellsberg. So now that we've woken up from it, what will we dream of when we go back to sleep? Well, <laughs> maybe something from the Tang Boys. Well, here's, here's a little meditation by Lee Ho. Sorrow on the mountain, a misty rain, falling in withered grass. Midnight in the capital. How many men are growing old in this wind?
evening. I get lost on small trails that twist through gnarled black oaks. Straight overhead, the moon drives shadows back to their trees, whitens the hills with false dawn. Torches welcome the newly dead. Over the fresh graves, fireflies. Firefly, light the way for another Radio Free Oz up here on RadioFreeOz.com. The Oz team, let's list them. Peter Bergman, say moi, your host. David Osmond, say Louis, your co-host. Ah, Louis. Hey, Louis. Bill McIntyre is our producer. Dave Maloney is our audio engineer and the man that makes Blue You possible. Tom Gedwillow keeps on the website humming. Scott Wilde keeps the connection. Chaz Glass keeps the figures and Phil Fountain keeps it pretty. See you again soon upon soon. <laughs>